I hardly ever mentioned things like this, but I was interested when I picked up a paper that I get in the mail that has a circulation of 245,000. It's called Pulpit Hats. It's some kind of nominational paper. Some folks in Chattanooga, Tennessee put it out. And generally, I'll read from some outlines that they'll have in it and occasionally cut something out that they have. I don't know if I've ever preached any of them, but I've laid some things aside to work something up sometime, especially the things that they have on the home and on family. It came this month, last Monday, I believe, and I opened the thing up, and there was a real good sermon on the home. Guess who originated it? It said Christian Bible teacher. And it didn't have my name. I don't care. I'd rather they wouldn't put my name, but I hope that it'll do some good. I wish they'd put a sermon in there like the one I preached this morning on how that God requires obedience rather than just something about the home. But I was kind of surprised when I so they, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Uncle Franklin had asked me to find my notes on the other side of the cross. Eleven years ago today, I preached a sermon similar to this down at Livingston, Alabama. I'd heard him preach at Freed Harbor on this subject. I said Livingston. I believe I preached it at Demopolis. I was over there speaking on the radio program for them on a Sunday morning and used the same idea that I want to talk about tonight. The cross is on every page of the Bible from the time that man sinned. Brother Nichols used to say that the blood of Christ runs through every passage that you read in the Bible, and I think that's true. As you read through the Old Testament, you have the cross in anticipation. And you'll see the cross as they offer the sacrifices that are found in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you find the cross and its realization and all that it means. John Paul read a passage to you this morning that was out of our Bible class this morning in Romans 5, and there are many other passages that I could have asked him to read that talk about the compassion and the love that God has for us and the cross. In John 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. God has a great heart of compassion, and he reaches out toward all of us in the cross to say, I love you, and I want you to be saved. In the book of 1 John, in the fourth chapter of the book of 1 John, verses 9 and 10, the account said, For in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because God has sent his only begotten Son in the world that we might live through him. And here in his love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That passage talks about the love of God, the compassion that he has. That is made visible, the word manifest, 
literally means to be made visible, to be made seen. And it's manifest, seen, visible to us in the cross of Christ. If we ever wonder if God loves us, we can look at the cross and we can say once and for all, I know that I know that God loves me. That He's concerned about me. And I love to talk about the cross and the compassion of the cross. The love of God and all the love that God has for each and every one of us and the sending of His Son to suffer and die that we might enjoy the privilege of being Christians. That we've obeyed the gospel and in Christ had our sins washed away in His blood so that we might be forgiven and stand justified in the sight of God. Stand reconciled to God. Our sins atone for so that we might be His children and walk in covenant relationship and fellowship with Him. But as we think about that side of the cross, I'm also reminded that there's another side that we often don't think about. And it's one that I'd really rather not preach about, and yet I realize the need to preach on both sides of the cross. The side of the cross that presents God's love and His compassion, His grace, has an opposite. When one spurns the mercy and the grace of God that's presented the cross and His love for us, there's no alternative but judgment. If you have your Old Testament tonight, turn to the book of Exodus. In the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus, and I'm going to read in a minute, beginning with verse 5. You recall that Moses had gone up into the mount to receive the law. And while he was gone, communing with God for 40 days and 40 nights, the children of Israel made a golden calf. Moses came down from the mount, and when he did... They destroyed the golden calf where they had been worshiping. And God said, I'm going to go in. I'm going to consume the people. Moses said, take me instead. If you consume them, consume me. God said, I'll start all over with you, Moses, and I'll make another nation. And from that will come the seed that had been promised. Moses pled the mercy and the grace and the love and the tender heart of God. And in Exodus chapter 33, you have the principles of fellowship with God that sometime I'd like for us to take the time to notice and discuss. But I want you to note with me in Exodus 34 that the account said the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. And there's the side of the cross of the mercy and the grace of God. And yet there's the other side of the cross. The next verse declares, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's what we usually like to think about. 
And surely as we see our own lives, our own weaknesses, and our own frailties, we see the need of the mercy, the compassion, and the love of God, and that we need a cleansing from sin. But I want you to note with me as this verse continues, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity upon the children's children, even to the third and the fourth, generation. And there's the other side of the cross. God in all the love and the compassion that he has, in all his mercy and his graciousness, his long suffering, same God that sent Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross so that we might receive the mission of our sins, can by no means clear the guilty. The other side of the mercy, the love, the tenderness of God is His judgment. I want to take tonight, as time permits, some Old Testament illustrations and some New Testament illustrations to show you what I'm talking about, the other side of the cross. And I hope they'll help us to appreciate a side of the cross that we don't oftentimes think about. God did everything in His power to save man. He loved us so much that He sent His only Son down to this earth to take on the seed of Abraham, the flesh of man, to live and dwell among men, to become a propitiation for our sins, to die, to take our place on the cross. That same God of love, tenderness, and compassion, God of mercy is also a God of judgment. In the day and age in which you and I live, when men in our day like to think and talk about the love of God, but spurn the judgment of God, we do well to stop and think. When there are people today who are talking about worship, even those who are members of the church, and saying, oh, it doesn't matter. I can't say that it would be wrong to bring an instrument in. We need not only to think about the grace of God, and that's what they appeal to, but we need to see that there's another side of grace that He by no means will clear the guilty. And that grace means judgment when mercy is When we turn our back on the compassion and the love of God, there's nothing that awaits but the judgment of God. Go with me first to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, I think we fail sometimes to appreciate the fact that not only did Adam and Eve enjoy the fellowship of God in the garden, as God walked with them in the midst and in the cool of the day, but man also provided fellowship for God. I think God is one who wants to be fellowship. If not, why has He through the cross provided such a means that you and I today might enjoy fellowship with Him and fellowship with Him throughout all eternity? It was not man after sin ruptured the fellowship that man enjoyed with God who initiated the scheme of redemption. 
But it was God Himself out of a heart longing for our fellowship that initiated in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 the promise through which man could enjoy the remission of sins. That through the seed of woman, that man one day might be able to be brought back, reconciled, their sins atoned for in fellowship with God. But then go with me to that same third chapter of the book of Genesis. The most awful day ever recorded on the pages of Holy Writ. And see the God of love and compassion drive man whom he had created, made in his own image, Genesis 1 and verse 26, pronounce them very good, Genesis 1 and verse 30. See God drive man from the garden. Drive man into a world that's filled with sin and death and sorrow, sickness, and the things that you and I find in the world in which we live today. The heart of the same God the God of compassion and love that had prepared a garden that was perfect. And there placed man in that garden as the same heart that drove Adam and Eve from that garden when they sinned. There's the other side of the cross. There's the side of God's mercy, His tenderness, and His love. Yet the God of tenderness and love and compassion when that mercy spurned has the side of judgment. His justice must be met. And thus when man sinned in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, they're driven from the garden. Turn to the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis and go with Father Abraham as God has told Abraham, I'm going to destroy the cities of the plain. In Genesis 13, Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now he's in Sodom and you'll find that Father Abraham pleads for the cities of Sodom on behalf of his nephew Lot. See, the God of compassion who says, shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? The same God of compassion, that when Abraham pleads with him and he says, if there's fifty righteous in the city, would you not spare it for the sake of those fifty? Hear that tender heart of God say, yes, I'd spare that. Does hear Abraham say, Lord, Adventure, if there's 45, would you destroy the city for the lack of five and hear the great heart of God as it breaks with compassion and tenderness and hear him say, yes, I'd spare the city for 45. Hear Abraham come down to 40 to 30. Finally, he gets down to 10. And he says, Lord, if there's ten righteous in the city, would you not spare it? And hear the compassionate heart of the Lord say, yes. But then turn to the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis, verse 24. 
and read the passage that says, And the Lord rained fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah and brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. What do you have? The God of compassion whose heart breaks. Who'd send his son because of my sin to die for me and take my place on the cross. Out of the other side of that compassion, bringing judgment. And to see the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah go up in smoke. Then turn with me to the 11th chapter of the book of Exodus. Nine plagues have been brought upon the children of Egypt. These plagues, every one of them out of the heart of compassion and the love of God, as Exodus chapter 9 says. Every one of the plagues that was brought was so, verse 14, that this people may know that there's none in all the earth beside me. God in His love had sent Joseph down to Egypt to shine the light of God down in that country where they might know God and come to appreciate His great heart of compassion and His love for us. And yet Exodus chapter 1 says, There rose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Garvey said that that passage literally means, There rose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, God. And to see God in His love and tenderness, through the plagues, to plead with the people in Egypt to turn from their sins. Every plague, Exodus 12 and verse 12 says, was against the gods of the Egyptians. Every plague that was given was to show them that there's but one true loving God who'd spare all costs, who'd do anything so that you might be forgiven. Yet, the same God that made the cross possible the same God that loved me so much that His Son died and took my place where I deserved to die. Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin's day. Is the same God that you read about in Exodus chapter twelve, verse twenty nine, beginning, where God sent the death angel. And the account says, And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat upon the throne, unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where there was not one dead. Who is that? That's the God of compassion, of tender love and mercy that took these people, not because they deserved it, not because they had earned it, 
but through his grace to lead them gently out of the land of Egypt and to give them the promised land. And that through them, through their descendants, when the fullness of time was come, Galatians 4, 4, Christ was born of a woman, born under the law. What is that? That's the other side of the cross. There's a side of God's love and tenderness and mercy. But when that light that God had sent down into Egypt to say to them that there's only one true and living God was spurned, there was nothing that God could dispense but judgment. Turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. You remember that Samuel was the first king that we read about after the people chose a king. And the account tells us that in 1 Samuel 15 that God had told Saul that he was to go down and to utterly destroy Amalek. Why was that to take place? You recall that when they came out of that Egyptian bondage, in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 8, that it was the people of Amalek that stood in the way, that hindered them. They had to fight a battle right out there in the wilderness, right after they had left the land of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 17, the account says that God said, I'm going to write this down in a book. Time may pass, but I won't forget it. Others may forget, but it'll be a memorial. And one day, judgment is going to come. Saul was God's instrument of that judgment. The modernists of our day have all kinds of problems. In reading the account in 1 Samuel 15 where the command goes out in verse 3 and now go utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. Slay both man and woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, and ass. God said you destroy every one of them. Why? How could the heart of a loving God do that? You have the other side of the cross. You see, they had spurned the light that had been given. They had failed to come to know and to appreciate the revelation that was given when the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed in the midst of the Red Sea. Rahab the harlot picked up on that. And she understood that there was but one God. And by faith she hid the spies, not Amalek. That was written down in a book just exactly like this says. Deuteronomy 25 reminds us, beginning in verse 12, that God was going to bring judgment upon those people because they had spurned His love and mercy and they stood in the way. Saul didn't carry out God's judgment. 
Do you remember Samuel came down and he heard the lowing of the sheep and the oxen? And he said, what meaneth this? You remember what Saul was told by Samuel to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And Samuel himself took a sword and the account says he hewed a gag to pieces. Why? There's the other side of the cross. God's love and tenderness and mercy and compassion is firm. The only thing that awaits is the judgment of God. Turn with me in your mind's eye down the pages in the history of time and you read about the Old Testament missionary who was reluctant, Jonah. You remember that God was going to bring judgment upon Nineveh because of their sin. And he sent this missionary down to preach to them, to preach repentance. And you remember that Jonah turned and went the other way when God gave him the command because Jonah didn't want those Ninevites to repent. Jonah later said, I knew, I just knew that if I preached, they was going to repent. They'd turn away from their sin. Sure enough, after Jonah was followed by this fish that had been prepared by God, the fish spewed him out on dry land, he goes again to Nineveh, and he preaches repentance. And when he does the great heart of God, saw these people in their sackcloth and ashes. And chapter 3 and verse 10 says, God saw their works, that they turned from the evil way. And the King James, I believe the American Standard both says repented, but it ought to be translated, God changed his mind. God changed his judgment. They're the Ninevites. You remember in Jonah chapter 4, God in trying to show Jonah the attitude that he ought to have, an attitude that God himself had prepared a gourd, and that gourd withered. You remember that Jonah pitied that gourd? Verse 10 of Jonah 4 says, Then the Lord said, Thy hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither made it to grow which came up in the night and perished in the night, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city? God's pity and love and compassion had spared the city of Nineveh. Come with me 150 years down the stream of time, and you read in the book of Nahum about these same folks, these Ninevites. Back in the book of Jonah, they had a tender, penitent heart. They had turned from their ways, and they had turned to the great God of heaven, and God said, I love them, I have pity on them. When you get down to the book of Nahum, the second verse says, The Lord is jealous, the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord taketh vengeance on his adversaries and reserveth wrath against his enemies. Look at the heart of compassion. 
Moshe said, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and I will not acquit the wicked. The Lord hath with his way in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. And there you have both sides of the cross. There's a side of his tenderness and love, his grace, his mercy. But when that spark the only thing that awaits is the vengeance, the anger, the wrath, the judgment of God Almighty. Verse 6 says, Who can stand his indignation? Who can abide in his fierceness of his anger? For his fury is poured out like fire, and rocks are thrown down from him. What is that? That's the heart of the same God who loved me and sent his son Jesus to suffer and die in my place on the cross. Turning on to the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, in the 23rd chapter of the book of Matthew, you have some folks who had seen the Lord when he was here upon this earth. And in Matthew 23, there are eight woes. My judgment pronounced against the eight blessings in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 23, the account says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered my chickens together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing? There's God's love and compassion and tenderness. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come to tabernacle among men. John chapter 1 verse 18 shows that he was an exegesis of what God is like to show us the great heart of God, to show us his love, his compassion, his care for us. But I didn't read the last phrase in that verse. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41 points out that Jesus went and beheld the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. But the last phrase in Matthew 23, 37 says, And ye would not. And thus, Verse 33 says, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And the answer is, there's no escape. What had happened? God in his tenderness and love and compassion pleading, saying, come sent his son to turn the hearts of the people. And yet they failed to heed that message. And thus, the only thing that could await is the side of God's judgment. In the book of Mark, in the tenth chapter of the book of Mark, there's a young ruler that runs to catch the Lord, and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked on him, the account says in verse 21, 
and loved him. What a tender heart. What a loving heart. Jesus was concerned about him. Jesus, out of the goodness of his heart, says, I say one thing that's needful in your life. You need to go sell that that you have, and you need to give to the poor, and come and follow me. And the account says, the young man went away sorrowful, for he was a man of great possession. Seems to me like the closest that man had ever come to the great love and tender heart of God right there. He had turned from the Savior and thus walked away. In the 16th chapter of the book of Luke, there's a man who was another rich man who lived his life for himself and didn't think about other folks. The account tells us that in torment, in Hades, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. And he pleads, Father Abraham, if you would bring one drop of cool water and put it on my tongue, Prime in anguish in this flame. The same God with a heart filled with compassion and love that said, I'm going to send my son. I don't have anything better to give. He's the only thing that can be a sacrifice for your sins. And I'm going to allow him to come to the earth and men to spit on him and persecute him and put him to death on the cross. That same God said, no. There was a time when there was opportunity for correction and you spurned it. And this man said, but I've got some brethren that are back on this earth. Won't you send someone back so that they might know that there's a place like this and they wouldn't come to an awful place like this place? And the God who gave me the loving story of Jesus dying for me on the cross, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. Then, there's a picture of the other side of the cross. God's done everything he's going to do. Through the cross, he appeals to every one of us. Jesus said in John 12, 32, And I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. And when one spurns the mercy, the love, the tenderness, the grace of God, the pity, the compassion that's shown in the cross, there's nothing else that God can do. And the only thing that awaits is the torments as this man lifts up his eyes. In the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, you read about Ananias and Sapphira. 
They'd been touched by the love of God and had obeyed the gospel. And yet after obeying the gospel, they turned back to the world. They wanted the plaudits of men rather than the plaudits of God. They were interested in what men would say about them. They were covetous. They sold a piece of land, claimed to sell it for more than they did, claimed they laid all the, or claimed rather that they laid all the money in the, the apostles' feet when they did not. They lied to God. And without a chance. Peter said, did you do it? And Ananias said, yes. And he fell dead. Just a fire in essence, Peter said, is it so? So fire said, yes. Without so much as an appeal, she fell dead. The God of love and tenderness and compassion when His mercy and His grace is fire presents judgment. That's the other side of the cross. In the book of Mark, in the ninth chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus tells every one of us that if there's anything that we do that offends. He said that if we're not careful in living our lives and failing to obey the commands of God, that we'll go to a place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And he says, is there anything in essence in the world that's standing between you and heaven? He said, if so, cut it off. And he uses several illustrations of that. He says, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. I've never been faced with this situation. My great-grandmother was. She had poor circulation in her leg. Gangrene set in, and the doctor said it's got to go off. It's got to come off. And if I recall correctly, Mama might correct me on this, I believe in Lloyd Nolan Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, they took her leg off. That's serious. Jesus said, is there anything in the world that's standing between you and heaven? If there is, remove it. Don't let anything keep you out of heaven. God in his love, compassion, and mercy sent his son to suffer and die for us on the cross. He's done everything possible. On his side so that man might be saved. That's the grace of God that's been extended. And yet it's up to us to keep the conditions of the gospel in order to be saved. And if we fail to do that, 
the only thing that awaits is judgment. I say to you tonight, folks, without fear of contradiction, that there will be no person who has ever lived upon this earth that has not kept what this book says who will go to heaven. God is a just God, Romans 3.25. And out of His love and mercy and tenderness and compassion, He sent His Son, Jesus, to suffer and die on the cross. And when we spurn back, the only thing that He can do is bring judgment. I want to read one passage as we close our study tonight. Turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. Verse 22, he says, Behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God. Upon them which fail, severity, and toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise I shall be cut off. To those in this assembly tonight who have obeyed the gospel and are faithful Christians, I think it's an encouragement to know. God Almighty loved me so much, he sent his son. Out of a heart of compassion, and as we continue in his goodness, will no way be cut off. Faith of the Lord, heaven awaits. To those who spurn the gospel, never obey the gospel of Christ. The only thing that awaits is the other side of the cross. If you're here tonight in this assembly, have reached an age of accountability, understand the truth, the gospel of Christ, I'd urge you to come. The Lord's pleading. His tenderness says, come. He died for you on the cross. You through faith and baptism can put him on tonight and have your sins washed in his blood to be forgiven, to be at peace, and to live in contentment. If you're subject, won't you come while I'd get withstanding while we sing?